0: picnic. Esther chapter 7. First Peter, a book in the New Testament written by Peter, opens to the Christians of his day saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. We, like Peter's audience today, are exiles, but not of places like Pontus and Galatia, but of Gilbert and Chandler, of Mesa, Tempe, of Queen Creek, of Phoenix. We're exiles just the same. And to be an exile means to live in a place that is not your home. The French artist, Bruno Catalano, has a series or he created a series of surrealist sculptures with significant parts missing. They're called the Voyagers. One example looks like this. You can see there's a hole in the middle of that sculpted gentleman. And Catalano says it represents those who travel and live far from their home country. As they go something of themselves is missing. It's as if they leave something of themselves where they're from. We are in, as Christians, in a similar state but in reverse. Authentic Christians live with the part of ourselves missing in the home that we've never been to. A part of us, as Christians, will always, always, a part of us will always feel off Part of us will always feel like something's missing until we arrive home to be with Jesus. We, Christians, are exiles. We are a displaced people who will not be completely whole until we're with Jesus. Until then, we live as exiles, not totally at home in this world. And I think it's easy for us as Americans to forget that. The thing that makes it so hard to live in this world as exiles is what feels so wrong, and that is evil. The great hardship for exiles in this world is that we live in a world that's not morally neutral, not just difficult, but it's evil. And evil, at times, seems to stalk Christians. And this is the way it has always been. The people of God have always been under attack by the schemes and temptations of the evil one. And so how are we as exiles to cope when evil has us in in its crosshairs? Do we just come to terms? Do we pretend like things aren't that bad? Do we try to just focus on the happy things? Do we turn a blind eye? No, none of those things. We exiles who live in the time between the time await a day when all evil will be destroyed. But here's the question. How do we live as hopeful exiles in these evil days? How do we live as hopeful exiles in these evil days? That's the question we're going to seek to answer throughout Esther chapter 7. Now, if you haven't been here, I'm going to try to catch you up in just a few moments. We've been in Esther for now seven weeks. Haman, the Prime Minister of Persia hatched a plan to destroy, I'm quoting, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate every Jew in the Persian Empire, which is the largest empire on the face of the planet at that time. Things were progressing according to his diabolical plan until last week, Esther chapter 6. That's when the tide began to turn. It was the beginning of the rescue by divine reversal chapter 6 was as we can put it the beginning of Haman's terrible horrible no good very bad day after the king endured a sleepless night Haman was humiliated before his arch foe Mordecai but Haman's day is not yet over his horrible terrible horrible no good very bad day was about to get worse Chapter 7 is the continuation of the day that started in chapter 6. So we have our first point, the request finally delivered. So let's read starting in Esther chapter 6, verse 14, and we'll go from there. While they were yet talking with him, that's Haman and his friends talking to him, the king's eunuch eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to to feast with Queen Esther. On the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled." So, these Persians, they like to feast. We're at another feast. And this time it's hosted, Esther hosts it for the king and Haman. And again, the same question comes up. The king asks Esther, What do you want? And for the third time, we hear, What is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. The king said this when she first showed up to him in the throne room. The king said this at the previous feast and now again the king says to Esther even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled whatever you ask so with the king reiterating the same assurance for the third time Esther knew the time was right to plead her people's cause before Xerxes the king was committed here comes the answer verse 3 then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sme- sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Now, her preamble here before she, as she gives her request is masterful. She says that her people have been sold because you'll remember back in Esther chapter 3 that Haman offered the king 330 tons of silver to exterminate the Jews. It was essentially a bribe. And Esther uses the exact same three verbs from the decree in, in, um, in verse 4. She says her people were to be, to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. Remember the original decree. We read this in Esther chapter 3, verse 13. Letters were sent by all the couriers to the king's provinces with instructions to kill, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. And so here Esther uses those exact same verbs to say this is what's going to happen to my people. And she's walking a tightrope here. While Haman hatched the genocidal plot to kill all the Jews, the king was complicit because he agreed. He gave Haman his signet ring and invited him to, to make the annihilation of the Jews to be the official Persian, Persian state policy. The king was ultimately responsible, but he can't be bothered with moral questions, remember. He's just as guilty as Haman. But notice, she does not imply in her request that the king bears any responsibility. Why? Because she knows who he is. She also doesn't say, listen, genocide is wrong. The king wouldn't go along with that. Rather, she says, the people being killed would be a loss to the king. What kind of loss? Losing so many taxpayers, essentially. She said if they were sold into slavery, then you'd get a benefit. You'd get free labor, labor, and, and you would have some benefit to the empire. But if they're annihilated, you lose a great population from the empire who essentially gives you tax revenue. Now, this appeal does not speak much for the character of the king. What is he interested in? Right and wrong? No. He's interested in what he's interested in. Money, power, fame, that's what he's interested in. But the most important thing about what Esther does in her request is that for the very first time, she identifies herself as Jewish. Esther says she and her people have been sold into destruction. She pledges herself for the first time with all of the Jewish people, and consequently, Esther, Esther, she says, I'm marked, with, I'm marked by, for destruction, destruction along with all the people. And that got the king's attention. Verse 5. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who dared to do this? At one level the answer is, That's you, my man. You did this. We need Nathan here, who's not here, Nathan the prophet, who goes to David and David says, who did this? Nathan goes, thou art the man. Now Esther doesn't go, thou art the man, but he is the man who did this. He's the one that agreed to such a dastardly evil plan to wipe out all the Jews from the land of Persia. But she's way too cunning for that. She needs the king's favor. She doesn't need to draw the king's ire king says, who, does, who did this? Now, so far, Haman, he's just a spectator. He's eating the queen's food, drinking the queen's wine, having a good old time. But that changes as Queen Esther lowers the boom. Verse 6. Remember, the king said, who did this? Esther said, a foe and an enemy, the wicked Haman. And you can imagine Haman's eyes at this point, Go as wide as saucers. He did not expect this. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. And the king arose in wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. Haman's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day just got worse. Now, Haman had a choice to make when the king arose and went into the garden. Does he follow the king? No, because he can tell the king's mad at him. So what does he do? Well, we'll see that in just a moment. Now, Esther, Esther's sitting there, and she knows, okay, now I'm going to be able to see Who has greater influence on this king? Me or his grand chief counselor, Haman? Now, the king is immediately incensed. Does he ask for clarification? No. Does he want more of an explanation? No. We may ask questions, but this king bolts for the garden. You see, when he is faced with a dilemma, his first impulse is to flee. We've seen throughout this book that Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, the same guy, relies on people to tell him what to do, and now his chief counselor has led him astray. So what's he going to do? Go off to the garden. So after the request is finally delivered, Haman begs for mercy. Now, Haman doesn't follow the king into the garden of his discontent. Instead, He goes to the queen. Now, this was dangerous because if he ran away, he could be arrested. Instead, now he throws himself before the queen to beg for mercy. Now, here's the problem. He was not allowed to be in the presence of a member of the king's harem without the king. And even more, Persian law dictated that he had to be seven paces from the queen or a member of the king's harem at all times. That's not what he does. Verse 8. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Now, in that day and age, their dining room tables didn't have, they didn't sit up straight like we do now. They laid on couches to eat. And so Esther's laying on the couch where she ate. And Haman is falling on that couch, begging for mercy, saying, please, please, please help, things like that. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Now, do you see what happened? Haman was begging for his life as Esther reclined on the couch where they ate. The king comes in and mistakes his begging for assault. So the king is in the garden, he comes in, and he thinks Haman, as he begs for mercy from Esther, is being assaulted by Haman. And the king, so are you seeing the king's not the sharpest tool in the shed? How many of us know the difference between assault and begging? Probably most of us. Did I need to take a course on how to spot warning signs for assault versus begging? Do I need to say, hey, listen, after church, if you want to know some of the. No, of course not. That's ridiculous. Why? Because we have common sense. What is one thing that this king is lacking? Common sense. So he comes in and he sees Haman begging for the favor of the queen, and the king takes it to be that he's assaulting the queen. What brings Haman down is not genocide, but a misunderstanding. Now, the irony here is thick. It's thick as a pea soup fog. Remember, earlier, Haman was incensed that Mordecai would not bow or stand or tremble before him. But now, he's bowing and standing and trembling before the queen, who is Jewish. Also, while, he's, while he is guilty of plotting to kill all the Jews, he's not sentenced to death for that. But he's sentenced to death because the king mistook his begging for assault. Ironic. What befalls the evil one here. The attendants cover Haman's face because he was guilty, that's never a good sign when people just come and cover your face, you're dead. Now, the king is, well, what do I do? The king never, and remember, the king never has any ideas of himself, so he's for himself, and so he's thinking, okay, this guy, Haman, is, has done bad things, I don't really understand, but I did see him assault my wife, I think, so what do I do? Well, Harbona, one of the eunuchs, he has some thoughts, and he's about to share those before the king. Verse 9 Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, moreover, like this is the middle of a conversation. Like, first of all, you don't address the king unless the king asked you to address him. But Harbona not only addresses the king, but it sounds like he's in mid-conversation because you don't say moreover unless you've been talking for a while. That's when we, we say things like, and also, or consequently. But here we go. He's Halfway through the conversation, it was probably going on in his head, and he says, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, which is 75 feet. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. (laughs) Haman's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day was the last day he ever had because it ended up on the gallows that he built for someone else. Pride does come before the fall. What a day for Haman. In the morning, he went to ask the king for permission to execute Mordecai. By the end of the day, the king granted his permission for an execution but not the person Haman wanted. He was executed. Haman planned to have Mordecai killed. The king instead had Haman killed. The honor Haman wanted for himself, Mordecai received. And even worse for Haman, the gallows he wanted to hang Mordecai upon, he himself finds the end of his days upon those gallows. The writer, our narrator, and Esther You read this and you think, man, this is brilliant, brilliant storytelling. But what do we see? We see the Lord, whose name is not in chapter 7 or any of the book of Esther. We see the Lord protecting his people in the most surprising ways. The Lord protected the people of God. The Lord protected Mordecai and Esther even though they did not cry out for help. Did you notice that? Do they cry out in chapter 6, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, to God for help? No. But the Lord protected the people of God. Why? Well, here's why. The Lord is faithful to his promises, even when his people are unfaithful. The Lord is faithful to his promises, even when his people are unfaithful. So how about for us? What do we have here at the end of Esther chapter 7? How does this help us answer the question, how do we live as hopeful exiles in these evil days? Two ways I can think of as we close. First, the Lord protects His people. We've seen last week and this week a massive rescue by reversal. Though God is nowhere, His name is nowhere to be found in this book, it is His hand that rescues Mordecai and Esther, along with the Jews of Persia. This book has no record of Mordecai, Esther, or the Jews crying aloud to God for help. You might, not, you might think, well, that's not that big a deal. They probably prayed. If you read the rest of the narratives of the Old Testament, when the main character prays, they record those prayers. Even if they do not record them word for word. If there is no record of prayer, they did not pray. For a point of reference, here's Nehemiah. Right at the beginning of the book, he says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord of God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. That I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. There is no prayer like that in this book of Esther. The silence from Mordecai and Esther is deafening. And yet, and yet, The Lord saves them and the Jewish exiles. Why? Because the Lord pledges to take care of and protect his people. He promised to protect the line of Abraham. The Lord is true to his word even when his people are not true to him. And that's the storyline of much of the Old Testament. The Lord is true to his word even when his people are not true to him. If you doubt it, read Judges. Read Deuteronomy at the very end when Moses addresses the people and at the very end before he dies, he says, you guys are going to be stiff-necked and you're going to be taken off in exile because you're not going to listen. God's promises, then, are not dependent on God's people. And sometimes we get this exactly backwards. We can think that we earn things from the Lord by means of our faithfulness. We pray a little, obey some, try to be a good person, and God is duty-bound to bless us. That is not how it works. None of us in this room have obeyed to the point where God is compelled to protect us and bless us and make all things right for us. While we may live our lives, more aware of the Lord above than Mordecai or Esther, we are not what we should be. See, some of the problems we have as exiles is that we Christians have, are, are accosted with evil from without, but we also are accosted by the evil that remains within us. <laughs> in fact, one of the hardest things about living in this evil world is that evil that we have in our own hearts. Which of us in this room doesn't know what it's like to feel sin, to commit sin, and to feel so broken and dirty and compromised and so completely unworthy? All of us in this room have patterns of sin that we war against. Things like anger and lust, bitterness, greed, unbelief, self-sufficiency, envy, Comparison. See, we all carry things like that around in our hearts. We know those sins. We know those feelings. And this is why we, as believers, as exiles today from the East Valley, need to continually fix ourselves upon Jesus. Why can we be confident that the Lord is able to do far more than we ask or imagine according to His power at work within us? Why can we be confident that He will give us strength, though we are weary, though we are weak? Why can we be confident that He will be forever gracious and merciful, patient and abounding in steadfast love toward us? Why can we be confident that He will never leave us, nor will He forsake us in the time of our hardship? Why can we be confident that, even, that He will use even the worst things that happen for our good? How can we be confident of such things? Because we are obedient, Because we're better than Esther and Mordecai? Heavens, no. But because we have Jesus, and more importantly, because Jesus has us, we, the faithful, are never faithful enough. But our substitute, Jesus, that's another matter. Our substitute, Jesus, the one who has stepped forward and taken our place, He, was faithful. He was faithful. He faced trials and temptations we can't even imagine, and yet he was faithful. He wasn't tempted by people like Haman. He was tempted by the devil himself, and yet he was faithful. And this Lord Jesus was faithful in our place, So that when we fail, we're not permanently disqualified. The Lord is faithful to us, even when that evil in our hearts, that sin that remains, causes us to be unfaithful to him. We catch a glimpse of this Jesus in Revelation chapter 19. As John says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. Faithful and True. That is our Jesus. The reason we can be confident that he is protecting us is not because we've obeyed well or had our devotions 19 days in a row or read our Bible or memorized this verse or that verse. But it's because Jesus has died for our sins, and rose from the dead. It's because all of the pollution caused by sin is now wiped away. It was wiped away for Christians when Jesus took our place on the cross, so that the punishment that we deserve was meted out upon him, and the blessing we deserve—we don't deserve—but that should have been put on him is put on us. The Lord protected Mordecai, Esther, and the people of God because he is faithful and true, not because they were. The Lord protects me and you and all the people of God, not because we're always faithful and true, but because he is. Now, you might be thinking that I'm saying that it doesn't matter how we Christians live. We can go around sinning, and it doesn't matter. Just ask for forgiveness, and you'll be fine. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. If you have a disposition like that, if you have a disposition where you don't have a desire to please the Lord, and you should have no confidence you're an authentic follower of Jesus. We Christians, we follow and we seek to obey, but we know that we fall short. And when we fall short, we're free to repent and ask for help from our gracious God and know that he's not out stalking in the garden burning in wrath against us but we can freely approach Him again and again and again and again knowing that the sin that we've committed that we feel so compromised by that makes us feel so dirty and unworthy has been put upon Jesus, our Advocate, our Savior, our hope. And because Jesus died and rose again, He will protect us. We can be hopeful exiles. Why? Why? because Jesus the Lord will protect us even from ourselves and sometimes that's the greatest foe we have our mind our choices our disposition it sometimes feels so compromised we can be hopeful because if we are genuinely sons and daughters of God He will discipline us to get our attention. He will bring faithful Christians to us to help us know that we've wandered away. We can be hopeful because those that are authentically following Jesus, that love Jesus and are filled with the Holy Spirit, He cannot lose us or let us go. The Lord will protect us the Lord will protect us another way we live as hopeful exiles is remembering that the Lord protects his people and also that one day the Lord will destroy all evil one day the Lord will destroy all evil he protects us not based on our obedience but he protects us based on Christ But one day the Lord will destroy all evil. Haman is defeated here in chapter 7, but since this day, other Hamans have arisen. Others have come up with genocidal dreams and have gone through with a lot of them. And in fact, there, are, there there's all sorts of atrocities happening around the globe even as we speak. But evil, friends is a temporary fleeting thing. There will come a day that we will not have to contend with evil anymore, either outside us or inside us. Evil has a date of execution circled on the divine calendar. And on that day, the Father will declare to a waiting universe, Behold, I am making all things new. And in this day of new things, evil will belong to the day of old things. Evil, outside us and inside us, will be forever gone. That day awaits us. That day is the future. But until then, no victory over evil in this life is permanent and lasting. Enemies arise. Challenges will ascend. And this is why Jesus matters. See, this, we, we want to make sure that we personalize the work of Jesus, believing that Jesus died for me. Yes, 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 a hundred times yes. But we don't want to only personalize his work. See, when he died and rose again, he died for and rose again for our sins, but also he died and rose again so that he might defeat all evil and make all things new. One of the reasons we exiles can be confident is that Jesus will destroy one day all evil. And not only that, He will make all things right. He will mete out vengeance upon the enemies of God. (laughs) He will mete out vengeance upon the enemies of Christians. To the degree to which we are opposed by evil, because of our Christian witness, He will one day bring justice. He will bring justice against all the persecutors of His followers. The most striking example is in Revelation chapter 6. I saw under the altar all the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? Then they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer and not worry about vengeance. No, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were killed as they themselves had been. They are not corrected for crying out for vengeance. Instead, they are comforted with the message (laughs) that more martyrs are coming and they need just wait a little while. And the implication is the Lord himself will avenge. See, this is why we're not free as Christians, to take vengeance upon those who regard us as enemies. That's the Lord's work. That's the Lord's work. How does this help us? How does this help us to be hopeful exiles here? First, recognize no one really gets away with any injustice. Let's say Haman ran away from this room and sailed to a far-off land. Did he get away with anything? Maybe for a few years he did, but not ultimately. Not ultimately. No one will ever get away with injustice. Why? Because Jesus, personally, will mete out vengeance upon those who are enemies of his people, who don't repent. Few are humiliated the way Haman was in the book of Esther. Many an evil man has died in his bed, but they got away with nothing. The Lord knows, and they will get away with nothing. Nothing. And friends, th- another reason that we can be hopeful is that we, 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 can have no, we, we need to have no regrets about any evil that we endure here. I know that's a big statement, and I know that many of you have endured extreme evil. But we read this in Revelation chapter 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That means He is counting your tears. That means He sees your tears. Whether their tears cried of disappointment, of failure in sin, whether their tears cried because you're persecuted unfairly, he sees, he counts, and one day, he personally will wipe them away from your eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Because why? Those belong to the former things that have passed away. I don't know what you're laboring under As you walk in this room, I don't know what makes you cry when no one's around. I don't know what kind of evil has befallen you. The Lord will make it right. And none of us are going to say on that day, it's not enough. Or where were you? He will personally wipe your tears away. Do you see how this helps us be hopeful exiles here? We may have many reasons to weep now, but the Lord himself takes note, and he will personally make it right. The hardships we endure here will be as nothing compared to the care we experience there. As sure as Jesus rose from the dead, evil will have its day and it will be gone. And the evil that harangues us from the inside will be forever gone. Friends, we have great reason to hope even as exiles living in this evil world because the Lord is faithful to us even when we are unfaithful to Him. None of us are who we should be. None of us are... As obedient as we might be, but the Lord Jesus is our substitute and He has taken our place. He is faithful, even when we are not. For much of this journey here in this evil world, we're going to feel like one of Catalano's sculptures that something is missing. But that feeling, that feeling is not forever. There is a day coming the Lord, faithful and true. He's going to make it right. Let's pray. Jesus, we're grateful that in rising from the dead, you did more. We're we're grateful that you, you took our place and died for us and Took the penalty upon yourself. But we also know that, Lord, you did more than just that. You have begun the process of making all things right. Even as you reign from heaven on high, even as one day we know we will be witnesses to the day when you throw sin and death, Satan and death into the fire, into the, the lake of fire, and we cheer even as one day we take our place before the throne recognizing that we aren't who we should have been but that you are faithful even when we have been unfaithful so lord i pray for weary road weary saints here as we close i pray for those that are carrying the burden of patterns of sin they can't break i pray for those here that may not be following you and Just feel a sense of hopelessness and that something's missing, Lord, like those sculptures. I pray, Lord, that you would help them to recognize the only hope they have is in you, Jesus. I pray for those that are going through hardship and sorrow and difficulty. Lord, I pray that you would build them up and give them strength as they continue to take one step after another to one day hear you say, Behold, I will make all things new. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful exiles, trusting in the ever faithful holy, perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen.